There's a word we use commonly in our vocabulary. We use it in terms of God. We use it in terms of our interactions one with another. It doesn't mean what it's always meant. People make these all the time and don't keep them. There was a time in our society when we actually had a moral compass that when a person made one of these, you could trust it to be true and to trust that they would follow through. Those days are gone. This word promise means nothing in our society today. It's thrown around flippantly, just like marriage, um, just like virtue, uh, just like many things. Our language has dumbed down because our society has down spiraled just like Israel in the days of the judges. That's why I don't even want to bother looking up the definition of an English word in a modern dictionary. I don't even want to bother. So my dictionary of choice would be what I believe is probably the pinnacle of American English. And so I tend to default to the Webster, Noah Webster's 1828 edition of the English language or American English. Um, I've actually got a hard copy of it. I found in a a grouping of books that was going to be thrown away. Uh, But you can actually uh, get an app on your phone. And I like to default to this dictionary. This was before all of us were made slaves in America. Abraham Lincoln never freed slaves, guys. He made all of us slaves to a federal government. And we're living that today. But this was before all that. And so it's a great place to default to look at English words, particularly with an American flavor. And one of those words I want to look at today is promise. Promise. Webster's 1828 says a promise is a declaration. It's not an opinion. It's a declaration, written or verbal, made by one person to another, which binds the person who makes it either in honor or conscience or law, to do or forbear a certain act specified. So a promise is a declaration that binds the one who makes it. And a promise gives the person to whom it was made a right to expect or to claim it. So a promise has bearing on the one who makes it. It binds him. And it has bearing on the one to whom it is made. It gives him a right to expect or to claim it. Now we talk about God's promises. God's promises are no different than man's promises. They are declarations that bind upon God who makes them the duty to do what he says he's going to do. And just like promises between man, God's promises give to us, give us a right to expect or to claim them. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a little, there was a little leather edition. I had one when I was in high school. It was called the Bible Promise Book. I don't see those around too much anymore, but it was a collection of all the promises in the Bible. And it was organized under different headings. And I used to flip through this thing and, 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 and remind myself of God's promises. It was a, it was a nice little devotional book, kind of like we see today 
with Spurgeon's Morning and Evening or, or Streams in the Desert. I don't see those anymore. I, I think mine is probably in a box somewhere. All my overflow books in my library are actually in Gigi's attic. Uh, my my, my uh, uh, shelves are overflowing and I have to s- cycle some in and out. And I bet you that little promise book is up there somewhere. But... They say that there's about 3,573 promises in the Bible. Thirteen of these promises actually contain the word promise. Now, depending on what you define as a promise, those numbers may plus or minus just a little. But there's a whole lot of promises in God's Word. 2 Peter chapter 1 reminds us of this. 2 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 2 through 4. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. God has given us everything we need to pertain unto life and godliness. Everything. Through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. God has called us to glory and He's called us to virtue. Virtue doesn't mean what virtue signaling like we see today. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. That by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. God has given unto us many great and exceeding promises. And it's by those promises that we can say even now we have partaken of his divine nature and we have escaped this corrupt world. By those promises. Exceeding great and precious promises. One of those exceeding great promises is also the exceeding last promise of the Holy Scriptures. And that's what I want to look at today. 3,500 plus promises in the Bible. The first one is in Genesis chapter 3. The last one is here at the end of Revelation. And there's many sandwiched in between. Promises made to Israel. Promises made to the church. Promises made to creation, promises made to the angels, promises made to the Messiah. And God has kept and will keep every single one. So let's look at the last promise of the Bible today. Here in Revelation 22, we've already looked at the last exhortation of the Scriptures, 22 verses 6 through 15. We've looked at the last invitation of the Scriptures, verses 16 and 17. And last week we finished up the last warning found in the Bible, a twofold warning. Do not add to God's word and do not take away from God's words. Those have, things have serious consequences. But today I want to look at the last promise of the Bible. And guess what? It's not even a verse long. It's only part of a verse. So we're going to look at verse 20 today, the first part. So we've heard this warning from God about tampering with his word Something America has done. You mess with God's word. You tamper with God's word. God will tamper and mess with your mind collectively. And I think the fact that God has messed with America's mind collectively could be seen this past week with the circus that was the spy balloon flying over this country. 
I mean, I thought there was supposed to be all kinds of satellites up there running around looking at everything and all this, but, but no, we see a balloon going across the country. You ought to throw a monkey wrench in everything you've been told, just that alone. You know, why would the Chinese send a balloon over our country if they've got satellites up there looking at everything? You know, it's just a circus. But that's what happens when you mess with God's Word. God will collectively mess with the mind of a nation. That happened with Babylon, quite literally, King Nebuchadnezzar. But it also happened with the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. It happened with the Nazis. Hitler in the bunker, insanity. And it's happened with us today. The old Baptist preacher, Lester Roloff, said, I think it was 1968, America is an insane asylum run by the inmates. Yep. A lot of our churches are insane asylums run by the inmates. But God is faithful, and he's made many exceeding and great promises. We're going to look at that today. Following this great warning, verse 20, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Saints, that's the last promise in the Bible. He which testifieth these things. Who is that? It's Jesus, the Messiah. It's the seed of the woman. It's the root and offspring of David. It's he that has the seven stars in his hands and walks amongst the seven golden candlesticks. It's he that was born of a virgin, Jesus of Nazareth. He that lived a perfect life without sin. He that was crucified and became sin for us. Who was buried and who rose up from the grave. He to whom they gazed skyward looking as he returned. The one concerning whom the angels say, just as you saw him leave, he'll come again. This is he which testified of what? These things. The book of Revelation. And by default, the entire Bible. He which testified to these things has one last promise for us. Surely I come quickly. Now this word surely here in the original language is a different word than what we see earlier in chapter 22. Twice Jesus has said, behold, I come quickly. In verse 7 and then in verse 12, behold, I come quickly. Now he says, surely I come quickly. This um, word, this particle in the original Greek here is a strong affirmation. When we see behold, I come quickly, that's another Greek particle. It means look, see, look, he comes quickly. But this is quite different. It's a strong affirmation. In Matthew 15, 27, this exact same word is translated truth. Truth. It means no question. No doubt. No question. No doubt. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, we also see this particle. And it's translated, even so. Behold, he cometh with clouds... And every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. Even so, surely, truth, Amen. So this last promise of Revelation is also the first promise of Revelation. This last promise of the Bible we're going to see is also the first promise of the Bible. 
A strong affirmation. Surely, what? I come quickly. Now, this I come quickly is actually in the present tense. It's not a future verb here. In the present. It's what we call the futuristic presence or present in New Testament Greek. It's a truth that transcends time. Therefore, it can be spoken of in the present. It's like a moral truth. Stealing is wrong. That transcends time. It doesn't matter if you're living in Internet America or you're living in Israel wandering through the desert. Thou shalt not steal. It's a timeless truth. In the same fashion, behold, I come quickly. The words of the Messiah here are a timeless truth. A moral truth. An enduring truth. Quickly. That word means suddenly and without delay. It doesn't necessarily mean soon. It means exactly what it meant 2,000 years ago or 1,900 years ago, whatever you want to say if our calendars are correct. When John heard it, on the Isle of Patmos that it does today. Suddenly. We've talked about the suddenness of God in His judgment and His salvation. And Christ's coming is sudden. That means when the Father gives the green light, it's sudden. When He stands, just as Stephen saw Him standing there in Acts 7, it's sudden and without delay. Behold, I come quickly. Now, God's judgment is sudden and without delay. Look at Psalm 37. The psalmist says in verse 35, I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a green bay tree. Yet, he passed away. And lo, he was not. Yea, I sought him, but he could not be found. The wicked spreading his influence like a tree in its shadow over the ground, and suddenly he was not. That is an exact picture of what awaits the Antichrist and the forces of darkness. All of this globalism and one world government that seems to be building and spreading like a green bay tree, one day it will not be found. Sudden judgment. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 3 warns us about the suddenness of God's judgment, particularly those of us who are discouraged and vexed over evil, like Lot was in the city of Sodom. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. God's judgment is sudden. When they shall say peace and safety, just like the people in Noah's day. Oh, that preacher of righteousness tormenting us with his warnings for 120 years. Rain? Where's all of this? Oh, I wish that preacher of righteousness would shut up. And then suddenly the windows of heaven were open. Suddenly. God's judgment is sudden, but so is his salvation. So is his salvation. And this last promise speaks to not just his judgment. Behold, I come quickly to judge, but also to his salvation. Behold, I come quickly to save and to redeem. Sudden. 
Remember that verse from Proverbs I highlighted last week? Um, uh, Hope deferred maketh the heart sick. Christ deferring his coming makes our heart sick sometimes. But when the desire comes, it's a tree of life. There's some men in the Bible who understand that. Job chapter 42. I'm just going to survey a couple passages. You can turn there if you want to. You don't have to. Job chapter 42, verse 10. Think of everything Job endured. Think of what Job had to say in in chapter 3. You know, when you have a despair, you're just like, Job, it's okay, it happens. You're like Isaiah. Job despaired in Job chapter 3, but look what suddenly happens in chapter 42, verse 10. Job put his hand over his mouth, repented in sackcloth and ashes. God told Job's friends, You aren't right concerning me. And you better go to Job and let Job make sacrifice for you. Get straightened out. Because you said some things about me that aren't true. And then we see suddenly, Job's friends went and did as the Lord commanded. Then it says in verse 10, And the Lord turned the captivity of Job. When? He prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Suddenly, God turned his captivity when he prayed for his friends. Jonah knows what it is to see the sudden deliverance of God. Jonah chapter 2, in verse 9, But I will sacrifice unto thee. Jonah's down in the pit, down in the belly of that whale, covered in stomach acid and seaweeds. Probably put sores and salt sores on his skin, just like those... Uh, those American uh, soldiers that floated around the ocean and survived in the Pacific theater of World War II, salt, covered in salt sores. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that I have vowed, that that I have vowed, salvation is of the Lord. And then look what happened. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Salvation is of the Lord, and what? It came suddenly fish spit him out. And then he traveled overland faster than anybody else had before to get to Nineveh. Acts 16, we see God's sudden deliverance, sudden salvation, quickly, just like the connotation here at the end of Revelation 22. It must have looked bleak for Paul and Silas Verse 25, and at midnight, Paul and Silas couldn't sleep. They were awake at midnight. They prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. I remember hearing Carter sing praises to God in a cell above me not that long ago. And suddenly, suddenly, there was a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately, suddenly, quickly, all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. Suddenly, quickly. This is probably one of my favorite examples of sudden deliverance, sudden salvation. Luke chapter 23 and verse 42, And he said unto Jesus... Lord, 
Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto them, Verily, in other words, truthfully, related to this word here in Revelation 22, surely, I say unto thee, Today, today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. God's judgment and God's salvation are sudden. Therefore, Jesus the Messiah promises, Behold, I come quickly. Surely, I come quickly. The Bible's very last promise. Now, you remember we talked about the law of the first mention in the Bible. A way, uh, a hermeneutic principle. The first occurrence of something, be it a word or a concept in the Bible, will set the tone for subsequent uses or appearances. And so how can we appreciate the last promise of the Bible unless we look at the very first one? Turn to Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is the first promise in the Bible. In fact, in Latin, in theological circles, it's been called the Proto-Evangelium. The first gospel. Now, in the wider sense, I'm not going to read these verses, verses 14 through 19, we see that God does exactly what He says He's going to do. He told Adam and Eve what would happen, and it happened. God keeps His promises. He does what He says He's going to do. But verse 15, God makes a promise here to the serpent. And in the presence of our first father and first mother, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed, the seed of the serpent, and her seed. The seed comes from the man, but here God says her seed, the woman. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. So here we have a promise from God that the seed of the woman would come. And the seed of the woman would be at enmity between, uh, with the seed of the serpent. The serpent is told that he would strike and bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. But the seed of the woman would crush his head or bruise his head. The seed of the woman is coming. God's very first promise. The Messiah will come. God's very first promise. The Messiah will come. God's last promise in the scriptures. It's the same promise. Now, we are told that the Messiah will bruise the serpent's head. That word there or that verb there in Hebrew means to strike or to snap at. It's like you'd stomp on a snake's head. To break or even to crush. That's what we're told would happen. That not just the seed, but the serpent himself would be bruised on the head. But the serpent will only be able to get at the seed of the woman's heel. Did the serpent strike the heel of the Messiah? Yes, he did. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 verse 5, But he was wounded... 
for our transgressions. His heel was bruised. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. Verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The Lord allowed him to be bruised. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Yes, the serpent bruised the heel. Further confirmation of this is in John chapter 13, verse 27. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Judas, of course. The serpent is Satan, the old devil. Where do we learn that? Revelation. Revelation 13 or 12, we learn that the serpent in the garden is Satan. After the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, that's Judas Iscariot, that thou doest do quickly. Yes, the heel of the Messiah was bruised. But has the head of the serpent yet been bruised? Many would say yes. That happened at the cross. At the cross, the Messiah's heel was struck. It was bruised. But at the cross, was the head of the serpent crushed? Many would say yes and teach that. But I'd say no. No. Not at the cross. Turn to Romans 16. Romans 16. Verse 20. Now keep in mind that the book of Romans was written around 58 AD, approximately 18 years after the cross. 18 years after Christ had returned to the Father. 18 years after Pentecost. Romans 16, 20 to the Romans. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. That verb here in Greek, bruise, means to crush, as in to rub together. The image I get is of stepping on something and rubbing it into the ground. Here we're told that God would bruise Satan's head shortly. Or speedily, we see that verb used in Luke 18, 8. Suddenly. The bruising or the crushing of the serpent's head happens when Christ returns at the second advent. That, of course, agrees with what the Old Testament teaches. We, talk, we see the wounding of the head Mentioned in the context of Messiah's kingdom in Psalm 68. In Psalm 110, if you remember, we talked about this passage on Christmas Day. The root and offspring of David. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. When you get down to verses 5 and 6, the Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound or bruise the heads 
over many countries. Habakkuk chapter 3 gives reference to this as well. Or Habakkuk, as it would be pronounced in Hebrew. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 11. This is what the prophet sees. The sun and the moon stood still in their habitation. We see this in the judgments of Revelation. At the light of thine arrows they went, and at the shining of thy glittering spear, thou didst march through the land in indignation. Revelation 19. The white horse rider. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. Blood unto the horses bridles, the battle of Armageddon. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people. The Messiah comes to rescue Israel. Even for the salvation with thine anointed, thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck. Selah, which means pause. Contemplate that. And then verse 16, when I heard, Habakkuk said, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself. The prophet trembled at the word of the Lord. That I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. The crushing of the serpent's head, as was in the Bible's first promise, happens at the second advent of our Lord. When the seed of the serpent is cast alive into the lake of fire. Thus, I would say that the last promise of the Bible is tied to the first promise of the Bible. They can't be separated because they're promising the same thing. Jesus the Messiah promises to come quickly to finish doing exactly what God said he would do. Exactly what God said to the serpent, the seed of the woman would do in the Garden of Eden. His heel has been bruised. The wound is healed. He rose from the grave. He's returned to the Father to raise up a peculiar program, Gentiles and Jews together, the body of Christ, from whence he will come to redeem his bride and to judge the living and the dead and to crush the head of the serpent. The Bible's last promise really is the first promise restated, thus closing God's special revelation with the same scarlet thread. The tie that binds all of human history is a divine promise by one who cannot lie. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 doesn't say that God will not lie. It says He cannot lie. If He cannot lie, then by default, as it is said in Malachi chapter 3 verse 6, He cannot change. Back to Romans 16 20. God shall bruise. In Greek, that's a future verb, an active indicative. It's certain. It's not a subjunctive verb like a maybe. It's a certain indicative mood, but it's future. It's future from the time Paul wrote that. So the work wasn't finished at the cross in terms of the crushing of the serpent. Our salvation, our redemption was purchased at the cross. And that redemption, that soul and offering for sin was finished. To Jesus cried. 
think if we make another cross, I want to put tetelestai on there. It's great. It's a great thing to explain. It is finished. It was as good as finished. The whole plan and purpose of God when Christ rose from the dead. I like what the old Baptist Greek scholar A.T. Robertson said about Romans 16.20. Shortly, God will crush the serpent shortly. As God counts time. Meanwhile, patient loyalty from us. Shortly as God counts time. Meanwhile, patient loyalty from us. The last promise of the Bible here in Revelation 22.20, the first part of the verse, shouts loudly that God hasn't forgotten the first promise of the Bible. He hasn't forgotten it. God hasn't forgotten what He said in the Garden of Eden. We forget what we say all the time. A lot of times people don't keep promises simply because they forgot they made those promises. And if they were reminded, they would keep them. I just got done reading an incredible story. Someone sent me a book, and in the flyleaf they wrote, Never, 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 never give up. And it was a story of an American uh, naval uh, officer who uh, went down over the Pacific with his crew, and he and two others floated for, man, I think it was several months out there on the ocean, two months or something, ended up on an island, but ended up being the Japanese, went from prison camp to prison camp. The guy was, was just in horrible conditions for three years, and when he was floating on that raft, one, one Japanese zero saw him, tried to shoot him with machine guns and blew the raft up. N- none of them even got shot. But the guy said to God... If you will deliver me from this, I will serve you forever. He said that on a boat or on a raft floating in the Pacific, surrounded by sharks, no food, very little water. And anyway, they were safe from the raft when they washed up on an island. It ended up being the Japanese who controlled that island, so they were passed from... One of them died, but two of them were passed from prison camp to prison camp for a couple of years, and it wasn't until several weeks after the bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki that they were rescued from the prison camp. Just got up one morning, didn't even know the war was won, and all these wicked, evil soldiers and and prison guards were just gone. Everybody was gone. And they just woke up and standing around like, what's going on? Then a plane comes in and drops a few supplies. But anyway, the guy goes back to America. He's rescued. He was a a famous runner before the war, and they expected him to break the world record in the mile in the 1940 Olympics, which never happened. His name was Louis Zamperini. But he came back and went through some very, very difficult times. He got married. His marriage was in shambles. Um, He resorted to drinking. It was hard to come back and live in this country after all of that. He was consumed with rage over this particular prison commander who had treated him so bad and felt like he, he, he could just, if he could just find the guy and kill him, he'd feel better. Just overcome. Well, this was back in the 40s. I think Billy Graham came to town and did a little uh, tent revival. This before he was very well known. And she, the wife tried to get him to go, and he wouldn't do it. When the, the lady ended up getting saved, and she finally... Uh, convinced him to go and he got so mad 
toward the end that he got up to leave and as he was leaving the tent, God reminded him, you made a promise to me on that boat that if I saved you, you would serve me. And he just did an about face and went to the altar. So a guy had to be reminded of a promise he made. It ended up being an incredible story. The guy lived into his 90s, but he was able to go back over to Japan and meet with some of the prison guards that were in prison and, and witness to them about the gospel years later. But it was an incredible story, but a guy had made a promise he forgot about, and God reminded him, and he kept it. So some of us forget our promises, and if we do and we're reminded of it, there's only one answer, keep it. But God doesn't forget his promises. And this very last promise here reminds us, as we look back at the first promise, that God hasn't forgotten anything he said between the covers of these books, of this book. He hadn't forgotten anything. Not his first promise, not his last one, and not any of those in between. God hasn't forgotten. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. I was able to speak on a show last week. They ran interviews 24 hours walk about Jesus radio I know the brother that has the show him and his wife are faithful to go out and witness in the streets but the theme was faithful and he was bringing on different people to talk and that word just drove me to that passage if we believe not guilty as charged yet he abides faithful he cannot deny himself and that's what God's promises teach us that's what is taught here at the end. He which testifieth of these things says, Surely I come quickly. God is faithful. Christ is faithful. How then should we respond, therefore, to such a promise? In these days when it seems evil triumphs everywhere, when it seems we have lost the things we have taken for granted and we don't know when we lost them. When it seems like God bears long with evil and allows us to suffer, how then should we respond to these promises? I think Jesus himself, the one that makes this promise, gives us an answer. Turn to Luke 18. Luke 18 Jesus tells the story of the unjust judge. And why did he tell them this parable, verse 1 of that chapter, that men ought always to pray and not to faint? And then he tells of the unjust judge and the widow that went to this unjust judge who did not fear God and did not care about man. And she bugged this judge to avenge her of her adversary. Apparently, her adversary had been part and parcel to the death of her husband, and she wanted vengeance. And she went to him over and over and over. And this unjust judge gave her what she desired, not because he was righteous or moral, not because he cared about God or right or wrong, but just so she'd quit bugging him. And Jesus says, hear what the unjust judge saith. In other words, consider this. If an unjust judge will give someone what they desire so they'll shut up and leave him alone, how much more shall not God avenge his own elect 
which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them. I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. That word speedily is the same word in Romans 16, 20. God shall bruise the serpent under your feet shortly. But here's the sad part of that. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. Jesus is telling his disciples these things, and yet he's acknowledging that when he comes, will he even be able to find faith on the earth? That's how little our faith is. But what should we do? What does the unjust judge teach us? What does Jesus say should be our response to this promise that he's coming? Cry out to him. Cry out to him. Not just once or twice, but day and night. Cry out to him to fulfill his promise. Hold him to it. Remember what I said at the beginning about a definition of the word promise? Not only does it Bind the person who makes it. It gives the person to whom it was made a right to expect its fulfillment and to claim it. If God seems to be silent, then remind him of his promise and claim it. We have a right. We have a right to expect him to do what he says he's going to do. We have a right to do that as saints of the Most High God. We can go into his presence and we can talk with him blunt. Blunt. If you're angry with God, tell Him. If you're frustrated with God, tell Him. If you question God's faithfulness, tell Him. You can do that. You can do that. Cry to Him day and night. That's what Jesus says. So when we think about this last promise of the Bible, how should we respond? Well, cry unto God day and night to fulfill it. To do it. Do what you said you are going to do, God. And then we're going to discover... Just like Job, just like Jonah, just like Paul and Silas, just like the thief on the cross, that God does what He says He's going to do and His salvation comes suddenly. So cry unto God day and night to fulfill this last promise. What else should we do? Turn to Mark chapter 13. Jesus has another word for what we should do in response to these promises. Mark 13. I'm going to read verses 31 through 37. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words, not my message, not my word in general, not my sermon, my words, everything he says, will not, shall not pass away. That includes the words he says right there at the end of the Bible. Surely I come quickly. Won't pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not his words. But of that day and the hour when heaven and earth will pass away, Knoweth no man, know not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son but the Father. So Jesus is talking about the hour of what Jesus promises to do in the book of Revelation in 22. Therefore, take heed, watch and pray, for you know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not what hour, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at even, or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he finds you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, 
watch. So what, what should we do? How should we respond in these dark days to Christ's last promise? We should cry out to Him to fulfill it, and we should watch. We should watch and be ready for Him to do so. My words, Jesus said, will not pass away. That includes God's first promise in the Garden of Eden and His last one to John on the Isle of Patmos for us all. What I say unto you, I say unto all. Watch. So, crying to God, crying to the Messiah. Watch. What else do we need to do? Luke 19. Now, Luke 19 is interesting because Jesus, it's a different point that our Lord is making than what he makes in Matthew 25. It's a similar parable. But when we look at the currency involved, it's different. Here in Luke 19, Jesus refers to pounds. These pounds are Gentile weights. In Matthew 25, the talents are Jewish weights. So the audience here, or the application, is a little different. In Matthew 25, the unprofitable servant is cast into outer darkness. He goes to hell. But here in Luke 19, he does not. There's no mention of that. Matthew 25, these are the children of the kingdom that Jesus is referring to in Matthew 8, verse 12. Cast into outer darkness, the Jewish nation that should have known better. Luke 19, these are the Gentiles from the east and the west. Mentioned also the ones who would come down and sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom when the children of the kingdom were cast out. Matthew 19's focus is upon the Jews and Gentiles who will be gathered into the church. The consequences with the pounds in Matthew 25 is loss. I mean, in, in Luke 19, the consequences with the pounds is a loss of reward and inheritance in the kingdom. The consequences with the talents in Matthew 25 is a loss of a place in the kingdom, damnation. So those are some interesting differences between Matthew 25, the Olivet Discourse, focused on Israel and God's plan and purpose for what's going to happen to her in the last days, and in Luke, 20, uh, Luke chapter 19. So what do we have here? Luke 19 and as they heard these things, he added and spake a par- parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country. So he's talking to his disciples here. To receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Matthew 25, he's talking to the people. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds, a Gentile weight, a Gentile currency and said unto them occupy till I come what should we do until he comes occupy occupy do his bidding do his business occupy But remember what Jesus says in Luke 18, the chapter before. We look just at the unjust judge in chapter 18. We're just one chapter over now. The ten pounds. Parable of the pounds. 
parable of the pounds is not the same as a parable of the talents. Just remember that. You can study that a little bit further if you want to. When he comes, will he find faith on the earth? We've been told to occupy. But when the Son of Man cometh, will he even find faith? Jesus said. That ought to shame us a little bit. But we are to occupy. We should respond to this promise by crying out to God, crying out to the Lord to keep it. By watching and finally by occupying. What does it mean to occupy? What does that even look like in dark days of evil and sin? What does it look like? What does that mean? Does that mean building up mega churches, programs, raising money, raising awareness? Is that what Christ is talking about? No way. I think we can have some clues by going back to the Old Testament when God's people also endured in very dark days, when they also occupied. Turn to Ezekiel 22. Jesus said, occupy until I come. He said he's coming. He promised it. It's right there at the end of the Bible. But we're in dark, vexing days. And we're told to occupy. Ezekiel the prophet was in dark, vexing days. And God told the prophet exactly what he was looking for. You can read from verse 23 and you can see the unfaithful wickedness of the land and even of its preachers in those days. Verse 29, the people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. That could be written about America, even red states, Republicans. And what did God seek? In the midst of all that. Verse 30. And I sought for a man among them. That should make up the hedge. And stand in the gap for me. Before me and for the land. That I should not destroy it. But I found none. Therefore have I poured out mine indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads. Saith the Lord God. God was looking for just one man. To stand in the gap for the land. When I think of a man standing in the gap for his people, I think of Moses. Moses was meek. And we think meek means weak. And Joe, Moses was also a little bit of a hothead. Moses flipped out on that Egyptian. And then he ran. Moses got upset and broke the Ten Commandments. Moses reacted to the murmuring of the people by striking the rock when God told him to speak to it. Moses was a bit of a hothead that struggled with the temper, and yet God described him as meek. Because what did Moses do? He stood in the gap for the people. God would have destroyed them, and rightfully so, and told Moses, I'll just raise up a nation out of you and Aaron and fulfill my promise to Abraham. And Moses stood in the gap for the people. God was looking for someone to stand in the gap for the land. Couldn't find one. Not even Ezekiel the prophet. That's what it means to occupy in dark days, to stand in the gap, to make up the hedge, to restrain evil. That's how we can occupy in today's America. Are we willing to stand in the gap 
Are we willing to make up the hedge against evil and draw a line and say, here I stand, I'm not moving, I will not comply, I will not give in, I will not plead. Period. Do what you will with me. Standing in the gap for the land is what it looks like to occupy in dark days. To occupy in dark days also means we need to be willing to stand alone. Alone. When I think about that, I think about some lesser known figures from Israel's history that just get barely mentioned, but all their testimony is powerful. 2 Samuel chapter 23, if you were in my dojo uh, Thursday, you're going to hear a little repeat. Hope that's okay. 2 Samuel chapter 23 lists for us the names of David's mighty men his most trusted friends and warriors in his kingdom and in his rise to the kingdom. And of those 30, there were three who were chief. There were three captains. And every one of the, each of these three captains had one thing in common. I'm going to read verses 8 through 12. These be the names of the mighty men whom David had. The, Tachm- the Tachmanite that sat in the seat Chief among the captains. So he was the chief of the three captains. The same was Adino the Esnite. He lift up his spear against 800 whom he slew at one time. And after him was Eleazar the son of Dodo the Ahuhite. One of the three mighty men with David. One of the three captains. When they defied the Philistines that were gathered together to battle. And the men of Israel were gone away. He arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clave under the sword. He used the sword so much that his hand was stuck to it. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to spoil. Isn't that what they do? They run away and hide, but when the victory comes, they're back. They run away and hide at church when the word of God is preached, but when the business meeting comes, they're all there to make sure they get some spoil. Nothing changed. Now, we don't have that here, praise God. But boy, have I seen it over the years. And after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. And the Philistines were gathered together into a troop where was a piece of ground full of lentils. And the people fled from, before, from the Philistines. But he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines. And the Lord wrought a great victory. These are three men who stood in the gap for the land that belonged to God that God had given to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They stood in the gap, and guess what? In each of their experiences, they stood alone. Alone. These three captains, Adino, Eleazar, and Shammah, in each of these experiences, stood in the gap and they stood alone when everybody else fled. They're heroes. I mean, David, even David himself, when he should have been out with his army, stayed home in Jerusalem where it was comfortable. Even David didn't measure up to this. And that's when he got into trouble. Looked out the window and saw Bathsheba bathing on the roof. When he should have been out there on the battlefield. Not these heroes. That's what we need in these dark days. We need Adinos, Eleazars, and Shammas who are willing to stand alone 
and God will give a great victory. Martin Luther stood along at the, uh, at the uh, Diet of Worms. Stood along. Here I stand, God helped me. And God brought a great victory. To occupy in these dark days is to stand in the gap. And it's to be willing to do so alone. That's what the last promise in the Bible ought to compel us to do. To be like these mighty men. Hebrews 11 gives us the great hall of faith. Heroes of the faith are described in verse 34 as waxing valiant in fight and turning to flight entire armies. Standing alone. The Maccabees did this in Israel's history. These three mighty men did it. And in the spiritual, we, 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 we need, that's what it is to occupy, to follow those examples. So, how do we respond or how should we or can we respond to this last promise? We can cry out to God, cry out to the Lord to do what He said He's going to do. Watch, occupy, stand in the gap, be willing to stand alone, and then lastly, we need to anchor ourselves. Anchor ourselves. If your house is built on sand, when the flood comes, it'll be washed away. But not if it's anchored upon a rock. Hebrews chapter 6 is a chapter that's been misapplied, ripped out of its context. A lot of false doctrine comes out of Hebrews 6 because those preaching it don't pause to consider the audience here. The audience here are Jews who are wavering back and forth between believing Christ was the Messiah and all sufficient and going back into the sacrificial system. So this would have been before the temple was destroyed. Wavering. Paul warns them about wavering. If you turn away from the final sacrifice, there is no other sacrifice. But in all of that, Those warnings, Paul says in verse 9 of Hebrews 6, But beloved, we are are persuaded better things of you, things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. You know, those that teach you can lose your salvation from Hebrews 6, they never read verse 9. Paul's talking about something other than salvation. And he's persuaded, even though he's warning those he's writing to, that better things, things that accompany true salvation. Then he goes on to say in verses 13 through 20. Well, verse 10, God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. We forget God's promises all the time, but God doesn't forget what we've done for Him. Which ye have showed toward His name and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Verse 11, and we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them, these examples throughout the Scriptures, who through faith and patience do what? Inherit the promises. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so... God told that to Abraham 25 years before Isaac was born. Abraham waited 25 years. 25 years. 
And so after he had patiently endured for 25 years, he obtained the promise. Suddenly, Sarah was pregnant. She gave birth to a son. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things, that is the promise and the oath, the counsel of the promise and the oath, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. What is that hope? It's the counsel, promises, and oath of God. Who have fled for refuge to lay hold. Which hope we have as what? An anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that which is within the veil, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God's promises confirmed by an oath. The first one, the last of them, all of them in between are an anchor for the soul. And that anchor holds. Amen. That anchor holds. That old faker, Ray Bolts, nuts and bolts, used to sing the anchor holds. He just didn't believe it. What he said was true, but he just stopped believing it. And then went off into sin and now justifies it. Wicked. The anchor does hold, it's a refuge. God's promises are an anchor. We need to anchor ourselves to those promises. Cleave to them. God's promises first. The seed of the woman will come last. He which testified these things says, Surely I come quickly. And every single one of them in between. Including Jesus' great promise, And I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Praise the Lord. The last promise of the Bible really is a summation or a collection of all the promises of the Bible summed up in a simple sentence. Praise God. Surely, He which testifies of these things, the same Jesus who was born as the prophet said, who lived, died, and rose from the grave, who built His church, who sent the Holy Spirit, all the things He promises, this same Jesus says, Surely I come quickly. It's as good as done. Let's pray for it. Let's believe it. Now, I'm going to stop there because what comes next is the last prayer of the Bible. So we've got the last exhortation, the last invitation, the last warning, the last promise, and then we have the last prayer of the Bible. And unlike our prayers, the last prayer of John here doesn't end with amen. It begins with it. And it's an answer or a response to God's promise. So if you want to know how to respond immediately to God's last promise or Jesus' last promise, see how John does. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha. We'll talk about that next time. Guys, I, I foresee that we have 
Three more messages and this is done. Maybe four. I think we ought to have a conclusion. And that'll make for 180, maybe. So we're getting ready to finish this up. I praise God for that. I praise God for that. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this word that today, a short word from your word. Not even an entire verse, but a very pregnant and powerful text. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. What a precious promise. The exceeding great and precious promises of God. The first one and the last one, Lord. And these are anchors. Help us to flee to them for refuge. To hold tight to them. To cry out to you to fulfill them. To watch and be ready for you to do so. To occupy until you come. To be willing to stand in the gap for this wicked land. To be willing to stand alone. And to anchor ourselves. Lord, we can't do this without your help. We know we're lukewarm, just like that last church in Revelation. Help us to buy of you gold, tried in the fire, that we may be rich, white raiment, that we may be clothed, and the shame of our nakedness do not appear, and to anoint our eyes with eyesight, that we may see, O oh God. We cry out to you, Lord, you said it. Do what you said you were going to do. Come quickly and redeem us from this present evil world. And until so, help us to occupy until you come. Thank you that your words don't pass away. Your promises give us a right to expect you to do them because you can't lie. Bless the food we're about to eat in our fellowship. We're thankful for these things in dark days. In Jesus the Messiah's precious name, the seed of the woman. Amen. Amen.